So I'm just going to slightly amend the agenda if that's all right. Sure. <laughs> being really annoying about it already, which is just two things. So um, the first is I always think uh, an engaged audience is the audience that um, ends up asking questions um, in the beginning, if necessary. So uh, honestly, it's completely up to you. I, I will take it as a personal affront if people don't ask me questions throughout the, the chat, because it means actually you're probably daydreaming about something else, which might, might happen anyway. But the idea for the, the talk, if that's okay, um, is feel free to interrupt when there's stuff that crops up that you've got questions over, because actually that's the most interesting part for me, is my ego could talk for three hours, but actually that's no use to anybody else. The, the interesting part for me, and hopefully for you guys as well, is when I'm talking about stuff that I've done, the journey that I've gone on, the stories that I'm able to share, the interesting bits that have, have happened, is for you to go, well, hold, hold on a second, let's go back and stage, how did you do that, or what happened on here, or tell me all the stupid things you did, and the mistakes that you made, and all the problems that occurred, and all of the challenges, and here are some of the cool, fun things that happened as well. So that's number one. Um, the second thing is, you know, because there's effectively only two and a half law students um, here or so, I'm absolutely more than happy to talk about detailed legal stuff, but I think probably what will hopefully give you most value is, um, to a degree, my experience in sports law as a vehicle for uh, what a lot of people ask me, which is, well, how do you get into sport as a job? How do you combine the thing that you love, tennis, football, rugby, cricket, whatever, UFC, whatever else it might be, with thing that will hopefully pay you to do the job or start on that process? Um, and so I'd like to just chat on that actually after I've maybe talked on um, the intro. So, you know, just very briefly, what I, I'll, go, I'll go back to front, which is what I do at the moment, and then I'll sort of, sort of talk to you about the journey through a little bit. So um, what I do now is, even though you wouldn't think it, is that I'd, that I'd literally wear hoodies and jeans to work, which is actually one of the best parts of the job, actually, not wearing a suit. I, I joined a law firm seven years ago called Sheridan's, and Sheridan's is like a more of a sexy media, sports, and esports, TV and entertainment law firm. And I remember my old place, it was very corporate, very traditional. You had to wear a suit and tie every day for work. And I, that's what I did. And so I thought to impress, going into Sheridan's, I bought like three new suits. I bought loads of new shirts, loads of quite cool ties, I thought. I literally went into the office the first day in my shirt and tie and basically got laughed out of the office because everyone, literally, there's, a compute, there's actually a computer games team, so there's a team that specializes on advising on computer games. They were literally in flip-flops, t-shirts, and shorts in the middle of the summer, as you can imagine. So what I mean is that my, my, my old life, I almost feel, of um, uh, commercial and mainstream lawyer has end, ended about seven years ago and my slightly newer, funner life of being a sports and football lawyer sort of emerged and so what I, what I do uh, generally is I work with uh, different types of footballers, football agencies, sports agencies um, and a number of sort of high net worth individuals in relation to on the football side uh, transfers and uh, commercial contracts and endorsement deals and reputation management stuff so if a player's tweeted something they shouldn't have done or uh, not turned up to training or had a problem with the manager or possibly being sacked or a story is going to be in the press, those types of things. And then when clubs uh, and sports entities are being taken over, then I work with either the sellers or the buyers on particular deals. So um, you know, it's, it's reported, so it's fine, we can say it, that um, we helped um, on the flip side of the deal with Ryan Reynolds buying Wrexham, which was totally one of the weirdest and coolest things I've ever been involved in, the truth. Because everyone goes to Ryan, not that I know Ryan personally, that I can call him by his first name, but everyone says to Ryan, oh, why'd you buy Wrexham? And it's actually a really good question, but it's almost like, well, why not? It's like everybody goes for the big clubs and the rest of it, but here's sort of a bit of a more of a fairy tale story. So um, that's the type of stuff I do. I, I was brought up as a, um, a Liverpool fan in Liverpool um, and moved to uh, London back in uh, 2004 or five, basically, after I finished my law school. Um, I went to a um, a law firm called Jones Day, but before that, when I started, um, you know, I was an undergrad doing law, and the truth was, I found it, I found it quite impenetrable sometimes, like just learning cases and trying to understand stuff, and you know, I come from working pretty hard at my A levels and being in this new world that is university, which I sometimes am quite envious of you guys at university still. Um, and sort of having all the time to myself, going to lectures or not going to lectures, um, 
you know, studying or not, or, or not everything that comes in between. And um, whenever I was doing a sports case, if it was contract law, or if it was EU law, or if it was an intellectual property case, um, and even randomly, like if it was wrestling or skiing or jujitsu or football or all the other things, it like it just stuck that more easily. I'm not sure if you appreciate it sometimes. It's like when you're reading sports news, it's like after a while, it, it sticks that more easily. You can explain to people about particular scenarios. You can um, retain it and then use it when you're having conversations. And that's what I basically did over years and years and years was when I'm having conversations with friends and family, then you just pick up stuff as you go. And one of the things was in sport and in law, they were things that were interesting to me. So I couldn't believe it, my luck, but I basically got my law professor to allow me to write on the football transfer system back in 1999, that's how old I am now, when, I was, uh, when the football transfer system was changing. Um, and I was like, oh my God, I can write 10,000 words on football. So that's how, how I felt it was, which was a great sort of bonus for me. And then I decided to do um, a master's um, degree, depending on which side of the fence you sit on. The, the way I explained it to my dad was, um, I'm going to do a master's degree in competition law and um, uh, televisual audio media rights. But to me, it was, I'm doing 80,000 words on football broadcasting. And um, it worked in the end, uh, which is good. So I ended up spending a year writing about how um, broadcasting rights, football broadcasting rights were sold around Europe, which was totally awesome for me. Um, and that enabled me to, to get my uh, first training contract and then to start there. And so what I mean by all of that is quite as an early step already, I was trying to combine the thing that I enjoyed with um, the thing that I thought might pay me for a living in the end. But what I also appreciated was it's actually really difficult just to start off and just say, okay, I want to be a sports lawyer or I want to go into sports or that's my passion, so I'm obviously going to be good at it. And the reason why I say that, which is probably, hopefully, if there's one tiny bit of wisdom I can offer from um, the talk today without going off on another tangent, it's like the thing that I say um, or try and say to people when they say, I really want to work in sport, more or less, I guess you're all here because in some degree you're interested in sport and business and how things are going to work. My honest piece of advice I can say is don't worry about going into sport in the short to medium term for a job. Because usually, it's usually for two reasons. The first tends to be is that there is huge competition at entry level for sports jobs that um, more or less equalize everybody. Everyone's more or less from a standing start. You might have some skills that set you apart, but on the whole, entry-level sports jobs, in if it's marketing, media, social, PR, accounting, not even law at the beginning, whatever that particular skill set or job market might be, everybody's looking for it. And there's a bunch, and almost like a, a massive set of people that think, I, I can only get a sports job now, and if I don't get it now, fuck it, excuse me, sorry. It's like, I'm going to give up because actually, if it hasn't happened for me now, it never will. When the truth, conversely, is exactly the opposite of that. My view on all of that is actually the people that persevere with it and actually think about, you know, what, what is it I want to do? Okay, let's say I want to be um, a marketing executive. Maybe I want to be a creative in the advertising agency. Maybe I want to be a social media expert. Maybe uh, I want to be the best in PR or whatever else it might be. Or maybe I want to be a lawyer. The way to be the best person inside sport is to get as much experience as you can outside of sport. Hopefully that makes sense to a degree. Maybe I'm speaking to the, preaching to the converted already. Yep. So you say your approach would be a more conventional one. Right? So you said you've been at Jones Day and enjoying yeah. You say that's... Conventionally, correct. For 10, 10, 12 years, I was doing <coughs> relatively little sports work. But what I was doing was getting a great training education and being the best lawyer. Now, I'm not saying you can't do both at the same time. You, you maximize your skill set in whichever area it might be, marketing, PR, accounting, law, blah, 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 whatever else it might be. But if you don't have that underlying skill and experience, you can't be the best person to be able to execute and exploit that opportunity when that bright job arises, in other words. So what becomes then really important is for you to consider, in my experience, is 
think about why sport because the opposite is actually the case you've got to think why profession and then linking the profession with the sport and the, the reason why I say that is if let's just again take a marketing example you become a great marketer but let's say you're working in pharmaceuticals and consumer goods and um, washing up get powder the truth is is that the experience you might get for five or six years working with some really great people across brilliant brands but that might not quite be touching on sport for example means is that when that job comes up in five or six years you can say I've got this body of experience of expertise of know-how of knowledge of how stuff works you become a lot more valuable to the sports industry going into more senior level and you become more um, uh, in demand to the industry then you want to be able to reach as a result so instead of thinking literally like praying at the entry point please give me a job even though I've got no experience but I've got a real big passion for sport and I think I can make a really good person in whichever set in the industry it is you do you do the inverse you get um, the best level of training and expertise in the same discipline and then look to come in at a much higher level whilst doing the second thing, which is just say you love cricket, for example, as either football or tennis or whatever it might be, and that's your area of expertise. You dedicate yourself as the side hustle to knowing everything you can about the industry. This one question I have, have is, when do you decide, or when do you start thinking about making that transition? If you've like, got a few years, you've developed your skills, um, and you know you've gotten some some experience that would be you know in demand as you say. Yeah. At what point? I think you know at this, we hear a lot. We, we hear that message. We, we've heard that. We, I think we've all heard that message at some point as well, especially being at LSE. But the other message we've heard is um, you know don't get, like you can get caught up in something and then forget about like what your original yeah. plan was. Or oh, this was this was all a long term yeah. plan to eventually go into this. At what point do you start thinking? Okay, I've got my experience now. Now I've start looking for opportunities. Or, do you, or, or are you always looking and always keeping an eye on the opportunities pop up? Or do you say, okay, five years then it's all going to It's um, so then I read the book, uh, thinking short. Uh, what's, the, what's the Dan Kelman book? Um, thinking slow and fast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one of my favorite books about choices and stuff. Um, I uh, plagiarize that by saying, <laughs> think long and short. Think long. Think long term and short term. Right. And the reason why I say that is there's no reason why you can't iterate short term every few months in a way right. whilst you're in whichever job you're in to go and constantly looking for opportunities and then making iterations on whether that opportunity is right for me at that particular time whilst the long term ambition can still always be you know ideally in three to four to five to whatever else it is I want to be in this particular sector because the thing is that happens short term is Every opportunity that you create creates a spectrum of opportunities and you'll not be able to see beyond the opportunity that you can't see. If that isn't really cryptic in the same way. It's almost like you've got to find the opportunity, you've got to see if it's right for you. If it is or not, then great, you've got a decision to make ultimately. But let's just say after one and a half years in marketing, you um, see a great opportunity at the FA, for example, for a junior marketing executive, and you're like, actually, you know what, that might be brilliant for me now. And then you think, oh, but maybe I don't have as much experience as I need to, and maybe I shouldn't do it. But let's just say you take the job, and then you manage to work with all of the FA partners, Budweiser, Mars, blah, 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 whoever else it might be. They're really impressed with the work that they do, and then actually they had you in three years' time to be you know, second in command of marketing at Budweiser Europe, and then you're suddenly thinking, it's a really good job and made that decision and you're half qualified to be able to go to the FA because otherwise I wouldn't have had that opportunity that had happened subsequently. So the reason why I say think long and short is it gives you that iterative time to not, I feel like a career counsellor here, sorry, I'm really sorry if that's wrong. It gives you that like iterative time to be like, as things develop, um, you will start realising your own worth as to how good or otherwise you can be and what knowledge you can call upon at interview or in conversation to impress 
not only your industry knowledge but your skill set i.e what is the technical competency that i can offer you the employer to show that i'm good at my job and will only improve at my job as well i guess i had something to follow on with that the message that we frequently get is um, sort of structures don't exist right now so maybe acquiring that knowledge is necessary so as you enter the industry people maybe in sport don't quite familiar yet with what the requirements of top lawyer, mm. top consultant, top marketing is to. And so it's more of a, so you, you acquire that reputation that went to school. I guess my first question on that is, is there sort of a measure of how good you are in sport itself? Mm. Uh, I appreciate that going to interviews, there's some sort of measure of your knowledge within the industry. Me as a football fan, I can probably talk to you about how Good or bad, Arsenal may be playing right now, but I don't know. Are there any sort of quantitative measures that people can go and they enter in interviews or things that you can sort of learn to be industry specific skills? Yeah. Um, make the industry your identity. So I'm not sure if that again is like just a cryptic idea, but what I mean is, is that I'll, I'll work backwards. What I get from a lot of people is when they ask, they say, Daniel, I've got this interview in two weeks' time about. Um, you know, the industry that I want to go into, what do you think I should prepare? And the truth is, is that I can say, well, think about this, 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 and this, because it might come in useful. But actually, they're asking the wrong question. And what I mean by saying they're asking the wrong question is actually, if your industry becomes your identity, you're constantly preparing for that interview nine months out or a year out by doing a couple of things. Basically, what someone said to me a while back is, your habits become you. Again, that's the right way of using that phrase, which is, if you can develop like even relatively small routines on a daily basis to um, deep dive in time into the area that's of interest to you, what you've got to work out is the compounding interest and value that occurs as a result. So I'll just give you an example because it's something I'm thinking about. I'm trying to actually write a mini book on it at the moment, actually, which is, you know, if you are able to spend 10 minutes a day or 15 minutes a day on understanding how the football industry works, for example, is what I try to do for quite a while in a structured and regimented way. Think about one week's worth of knowledge. Think about a month's worth of knowledge. Think about six months' worth of knowledge. And a couple of, I think, really good things happen as a result. Firstly, it's not like you're preparing for an end goal of an interview. You're prepared, you're continuing on that learning process because everyone's got to learn. I, I try and, it doesn't happen all the time, but I try and read about an hour a day on stuff that's not in my wheelhouse because you always connect dots, different things happen and you can get better ideas from just staying quite siloed. But most importantly, the thing that happens is twofold. One, your knowledge slowly increases in silos usually. So it's like, you know, transfers, uh, broadcasting rights, where the money comes from, um, cases, interesting stuff that happens, whatever else it might be. But then what happens is you get to a critical mass when suddenly things start connecting together. And you don't see it until the first time that you are speaking about it to somebody and then in your brain suddenly goes, okay, I'm speaking about that player contract but that actually links to the broadcasting rights thing because that's how much clubs are getting by way of money that links into salary caps the salary caps linked into governance stuff and the governance links into the government report on that and the part of the political guys are thinking about it for this reason so what I mean is you develop this map in your brain at some point and it becomes quite a cool convoluted map but your synapses, synapses start like firing in lots of cool different ways. But you only do that by investing the time after a while and being able to do it. And then what happens, back to the question about interviews, the truth. Then what happens is you start speaking usually to your mum and dad or your family or your friends and they start getting really bored about you telling them about the things that are really interesting to you, that they're just nodding and being, you know, they're just happy that you know, you're interested in something, yeah. basically. Um, because, but basically what you're doing is you're testing, you, I know you're articulating your answers to when it actually matters. 
to the time that you've got to impress somebody or look to try and impress someone with your knowledge on the sector, on the industry, on the sport stuff. Usually the question to always ask when people say, well, what do I want to actually, what should I actually know? It's a very simple answer. Follow the money in sport. Follow the money. Wherever the money comes in, wherever it goes, is usually the point of commercial interest. In Where is the money now? I'll come on to that in one second if that's all right. Because, because then when we get, when you get to into, because then when you transition from boring your family and friends senseless as to the thing you're interested in speaking about, you then get into going to conferences or starting to go and meet people in the network that you, as, you aspire basically to be able to go into. And if you can do it right, which then transitions into the right time of interviews, when they ask you about a particular topic, just as you said, yeah. it's not about technical skills because you don't have the technical skills because necessarily you might not have the job at first instance. So okay, yeah, still recording. Um, what you do have are loads of disparate, interesting stuff around the money commercialization of sport. And that's what happens. That's what happened. I remember with one of my law interviews, thank God he didn't ask me anything about law because I didn't really know that much about law, but he was a football fan. And I just managed to get him on to talking about, I think it was Arsenal Spurs. I remember I thought the interview went brilliantly because what we did was talk about Arsenal Spurs and how bad Liverpool were at the time and talk then about the five books that I'd read previously, which were all just about the football industry. And I was talking about Sky and broadcasting rights and um, where the money was in. And we talked for 45 minutes and he was like, thanks Daniel, um, uh, I'll see you for the second interview next week. But I mean, I didn't get set, I didn't do one in the second, that's a different matter. But so th that's what I mean. So when people ask me, you know, I really want to prepare for this really important interview because like, it's my dream job, I want to work in sport, or what, basically substitute sport for any other sector is the truth. But we're, we're here talking sport, so let's talk about sport. What you actually need to do is build the invisible framework beforehand. And if you can build the invisible framework beforehand, which gets you in the position of when people ask, it's like, how do you know so much about the industry now? It's like, and people say, oh, your knowledge is so good, or whatever topic it might be. You know, you might go, oh, I'm just interested in it. But the people really, if you delve deep down into it and you ask them the question, it's the, that iceberg effect. The top of the ice, tip of the iceberg looks great and pretty, basically. It's like how great you are at the stuff that you didn't realize people thought you were at. But underneath is the vast majority of the piece of ice demonstrating the thing that no one else can see, but is probably the four years worth of 10 minutes a day that means you start to connect all the dots together. Yep. Talk about the compound effect of gaining knowledge over a certain amount of years and also about gaining experience within other industries within mm -hmm. the same discipline. So, you say that brings um, an advantage when it comes to making um, the similarities with other industries but still also coming to something different but to the Totally. And I think um, the answer to that is most of the time, uh, non-sports industries um, actually are well in advance of the sports industry in particular ways. So in some of the things I did, so again, this is the non-sexy part of the talk. I literally spent 10 years working in the automotive, agriculture, financial services, aviation, um, uh, telco, media industries as well, because that was part of my job as a lawyer. But what I found after doing all these different parts of work in all of these sectors, I could bring some of those really interesting issues and processes and things I'd heard, stuff that had happened into my experience of football and sports and regulation. So again, just very briefly, I, I still remember to this day, I had to read a 95-page um, European directive on um, how vegetables were classified. Literally, that was it. it was 95 pages on how vegetables should be classified for EU regulations. I'm not saying that's a reason for Brexit, far from it, because I'm actually pro-European, that's a different story. But what I mean is, is that I was like, if I can read 95 pages on vegetable regulations, I can read 150 pages on football regulations. But what I mean more so than that was, read, 
becoming an expert in the regulations of something gave me confidence that I could transpose that skill set into sport and into football and into understanding it. So I could read something, I could read the regulations like twice and be like, I think I've got it. And as geekily as it sounds, that's how I started out in the football and sports industry. I was like, I was a regulations lawyer. Now, the, the cool side of me saying is I'm a transfer, commercial and dispute football lawyer, but actually I'm an employment IP and uh, high court sports lawyer. That's why I am, but just say whatever you use to different crowds. <laughs> Did you know that at the time when you were reading through that the nine to five page uh, thing on, on vegetables? Were you thinking, okay, I'm going to be defined by this now? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> were you like, okay, this this thing might suck, but but did you have what you said just now about how that would be? Did you have an idea of that, or was it only retrospectively you realised? Um, I think about it now quite a lot, actually, not the vegetables, but um, <laughs> yeah. No, but what I actually realised is. Um, I think I plagiarized the phrase, but I'm gonna use it as my own, uh, that says, nothing is a waste and everything is an opportunity. Okay. You live by that even through the- Absolutely house. everything. There is nothing that I consider is worthless whatsoever at all. Because if you think in, in a sub-zero game or a zero-sum game, then it means basically something has to go to waste for you to do something good in something else. Like if I do this and it's not worked out, then it's totally wasted and it's a waste of my time and I regret it and I feel really bad and what's been the point? Whereas the opposite, I think, is entirely true, which is do everything because it will all come in useful. Life experience, listening better, fucking up, good stuff that happens, iterating, trying to deal with difficult people, trying to actually emulate really good experiences from good people and mentors that you work with. It's all part of the same thing. So like, for example, when um, someone says, um, I would like work experience with you, Daniel. Um, the truth is, is that actually, they're not asking the right question. I, I know it's the, the common like response or the common ask, but actually, Again, one of the things that's really important in terms of that, going off on one again, but we'll go back to yours in a second and come back around, is when you're asking for help from people, it's very, very important that you think about not yourself, but about the other person. And I'll come back hopefully to why that's important for your bit in the end. Because everybody else thinks it's about them. And it usually is, it's the truth. But what you need to work out is how to play the game well, especially when you're starting off in the industry or looking for experience or looking for opportunities or looking for things that crop, come along. And usually the answer to the question is yes. And if the answer to the question is yes, what's the question? The answer, the question isn't, can I have work experience? Because actually it's very hard for me to do it means I have to supervise you for a long time. It means I've got to go through a lot of bureaucracy to be able to get you on board. And even as good a person as I am in life, it's too much hassle usually for that, for that to happen. The real question, which I'll tell a story about, which worked really well, is for someone that said, so I'll tell the story now, was there was a guy who's an, uh, an undergrad student at um, Sunderland, Bart, um, who works for, do you guys know about Gary Vaynerchuk? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gary, Gary, Gary V. Gary v. He works for him on his Polish content channels, and so he got he got in touch with uh, Bart got in touch with me uh, just over two years ago, uh, and he wrote three sentences in an email. He said, "Dan, really like your content. Um, I think I can do a lot more with it. Can I work with you?" I was like, "Hell yeah, you can!" Because I need a, a lot of help with that because I have no digital editing skills. Um, I really want to try and broadcast my content in lots of different ways to get to more people. You were mentioning before I had with my YouTube channel that you yeah. watched and, and did, which is great. Uh, someone watching. Um, and all I had to do was type back yes. And the reason why I say that as a result is what 99.9% .9 fundamentally that people don't understand, or rather 
don't get it till they're told it, and then there's usually a light bulb moment, is how do I get an experience from this person who thinks I'm adding value to them? And it's a really difficult thing to do because what you've got to do, which I think Bart did really well, don't mind pointing there, but I'll point there, is he was like, Dan's content's a bit rubbish. Or maybe he hasn't put all the content out there. Or maybe I can help him and get and, and, and sort of get to know his net, him and his network and see what can happen from there. And opportunity creates opportunity, creates opportunity, creates opportunity. So when you're looking especially into sport, the reason why I then say, uh, no, uh, no, nothing is wasted and everything is an opportunity is what you've got to do is get a foothold any way you can into the industry to work out whether it's even for you. I know loads of people that have got to work with an agent and have been like, hell no, this is, this is really not what I thought it was going to be at all. And I really dislike it. And there's lots of people that have thought very well, thought brilliantly about it. And I'm, again, trying to give you another story, which is someone... Um, Told an eight football agent I work with um, told a story about how someone got in touch with them again uh, is LinkedIn or on Insta or whatever else it might be and just said um, what is your pain point at the moment what is the thing that I can help with which is taking up more of your time that I could do for you instead of you and uh, you could even get more nuanced than that and actually the guy came back and said um, what I actually really need help with is picking some boots up from Nike on occasion, delivering them round to me, and then possibly taking them to a few young players who need stuff at different times and might need a hand with particular things. And the guy was like, of course, do that. But, but you see how that's a very different mindset from going to the football agent, please give me work experience, I really wanna, I really wanna work in the industry. It's almost like um, if you've got to plead you're already behind. What you've got to do is see where the angle is and find the angle, find find the proactive approach to just literally the person saying yes. And then when they say yes, the course of least resistance to be able to work through. Because then what happens is you create the opportunity. And I know it sounds like a menial, menial thing, but it doesn't need to be forever. And so what happened with this guy is that uh, he developed a relationship with Nike, for example, a junior person at Nike. He then developed the relationship uh, with the agency and he got six months work experience there after showing that he was actually really good. And did they stay at the agency after that? No, but what happened is after having the agency and the Nike stuff on their CV, six months later or a year later, when another sports agency was interested, they said, well, how, how did you manage to get that work experience? That's really difficult and how you did it. And he told the story of how they did it. And they said, that's really proactive and really interesting. That's exactly the type of character traits we want to see from our people to be able to do well, etc. You can see the you can see the causation chain basically. So the, the point about nothing is wasted and everything's an opportunity is again back to the same point, which is I think what you've always got to consider is you you've got to constantly iterate and because you can't see beyond the choice that you don't know. I'm sounding like the guy from the Matrix, I think, isn't it? Um, yeah. Um, because you can't see beyond the choice that you can't see, you can never know where you're going to go. But what you've absolutely got to do at every path and stage is create the opportunity to be able to do it. Because if not, then you're just going to be like literally 99.9% .9 of people are just a bit like, just applied for a couple of roles and maybe I got an interview but it didn't happen and then it's 10 years on and thought I quite like sport but it just wasn't for me. So I gather that the networking aspect is pretty key from in sport especially I take it a lot of that must have to do with the fact that like you said those sort of structures don't exist that initially and obviously the character traits are very important I presume that many teams are pretty small in sport you know, so to understand the person you're working with is important but I guess I wanted to also explore to take some another tangent, I guess, and, and look at sort of what are the day-to-day -day responsibilities and works that you do as a sports player. What avenues can people look into? Um, you mentioned contract negotiation and stuff. Maybe just share a tiny spotlight on sort of what is your day-to-day -day at Sheridan's and what sort of work you do um, at the company. Yep. Um, it varies, is the truth. So I'll just give. I'll try and tell you what I've done today. Um, so I. Um, had a 
coffee with one of my clients around the park in Highgate. Um, because I quite like walking at the moment, literally. Oh, I knew it. Yep. I live right next to them. Okay. <laughs> Beautiful. Yeah, sorry. Maybe I'll see you then. Um, and uh, I won't tell you my address just in case. <laughs> but um, so yeah, I had a drop the kids off, had an early morning coffee with one of the guys I've done a lot of work with in football for years. Got into the office. Uh, we've got a really big. Um, data litigation case at the moment, which is in the e-disclosure phase. So I'm literally stuck on the computer for a few hours marking documents and tagging stuff that needs to be done. I then had um, a call with a production company that is looking to work with um, a couple of footballers on um, a new format that's going to be launched at some point across one of the platforms over the next couple of years. Um, I then um, had a call on um, from an agent on <coughs> Uh, whether there was a problem with them doing something for the football agents regulations, for example, I then um, had to do uh, had to finish a draft for a commercial deal for a footballer working with a new brand. Um, I then met someone for there might be a new client who is invested in a really big sports data company, um, and they were just asking me questions about the industry, and then I got back. Then realised that was almost late for the meeting for our thing, so I had to quickly get across. So, um, what I mean is, is that when you the difference is when you get to a slightly more senior position, um, you become a different person to the one that you, we were talking about at the beginning. We start off with in the industry, which is you are basically delegated to. You know, you're effectively you're happy to be doing the work. Great that you've got senior people that you're learning from problem that I have sometimes is I don't have that many senior people on the whole that I can learn from in a way. I'm not, I, I have a, a lot of different mentors across different people that I'm always constantly going, asking questions, all the rest of it. But when you're more junior, you're, you're doing the task. Whereas when you get a bit more senior, you're strategizing the task um, and you're looking above, down rather than down, up. Um, but when you're starting off, just to your point a little bit, is you know, there's a number of things which are really important, regardless if you're in sports or in a different industry, it's really important to, to be doing that I did terribly when I started because no one had told me. Um, not that that's an excuse, um, but it was stuff like a few things. Um, I spoke way too much. Like, as I've got a little bit older, I mean, I've literally spoken for 40 minutes. So. Um, but as I've got older, um, I've realised that actually listening is a bit massive, and especially when you're networking, just to your point on networking, um, I was a very nervous networker <laughs> when I was younger. And I just remember going to conferences, knowing nobody, literally knowing nobody, whichever sector it was, sport being sometimes, and just waiting by the teas and coffees and just praying someone was just like going to come near and like, just, I was just bombarding them stuff and just being so happy that someone or I talk to someone and then you talk to them for too long because there's no one else to talk to and then they're sort of looking for ways to get away from you and stuff like that um, but what I mean is is that when especially when you're more junior it's really important just to be to practice asking open-ended questions on stuff because again uh, the truth is people love talking about themselves especially these type of contexts or whatever else it might be. So the more open-ended questions you can get, the more you get the other person to speak about the types of experiences that, they're, that are happening for them and the types of things that they're doing. What happens then, as you can imagine, we talked about knowledge base before, what ends up happening is you start getting intel about the stuff that they're doing. And that's the thing I love actually doing now more than anything else, is going to meet and speak to people and just you know listening to what they've got to say on stuff, because it's cool. And like I'm speaking with cutting edge people doing really cool stuff and I get their insights about and then plagiarise their cool ideas to tell other people about. So. I actually had a, a personal question. Um, just about the it is. Maybe, maybe, maybe how, I guess if we're talking about where the money's going, yeah. this is sort of one thing that I've been very curious about, very specific. So lately, Manchester City's Kevin De Bruyne, um, I believe he negotiated his own contract data analytics and we're hearing a lot in sport in general about more data coming in and the use of data and performance and obviously in the back end of things whether it's contracts or it's 
negotiating deals or scouting. Um, do you see that continuing? Or, I mean, as someone I presume very involved in contract law yep. negotiations in that sense, is that something that's you know, becoming increasingly common? Is that something maybe that would be a, a special trait for someone to understand or sort of follow down that path? Um, I uh, I think it's a um, a little bit of an outlier. Is yeah. the truth? I think it's a bit of an outlier because of a number of facets. So, um, because fundamentally, the way that agents work, football agents especially work, is you know part of their value is garnering intel and. The, the invisible network that they create, basically. So what ends up happening a lot of the time is even when an agent is renegotiating a deal um, at the, the club that the player's at, if the player's doing it themselves, on the whole, they won't know, that they'll, they'll think they know their market worth, i.e. what their salary should be. They think they might be able to know how deals can be structured sometimes, and they might be able to do it if they have the right lawyers and accountants and stuff going on. But what they probably won't have is an idea about what the market says their value is. And usually by way of the market, I mean an agent will almost certainly be out there knowing intel about every lots of different clubs, being able to ring up the chief executives, sporting directors, chief scouts, whoever else it might be, and saying, you know, 20 million for this guy and 5 million signing on fee, and is he worth 200,000 pounds a week, or is he worth 150, or is he worth 250? The reason that De Bruyne one is interesting on the whole is because it's an outlier, an outlier. Mm -hmm. He wanted to, obviously wanted to stay at City. He, City knew his value, he more or less knew his worth to a degree. Yeah. And then he had, I know, you know, I know the lawyers involved in the deal. He had a very good set of lawyers and accountants mm -hmm. that more or less knew how to structure stuff. But for the vast majority of players, number one, they'll have an agent under an exclusive representation contract, so they'll have to work with the agent. De Bruyne, in that particular way, just didn't have an agent at that particular time for lots of different reasons. Um, so it may happen in some instances, but it will only happen really for the very top players, I think, that are staying at their club, where the club knows they're going to more or less make them one of the highest earning players, and that everyone is basically happy with that approach. Because otherwise, agents actually fulfill a very useful um, network and valuation role that most people don't see. Sure. Um, I guess a, a, another topic just of interest about having on this, um, quite literally where the money is going, so now there's a big sort of theme of private equity firms, and I know like on your YouTube channel that you were speaking about Newcastle and Takeover, but maybe Stripping it back on something that you're more familiar with, so BT Sports and Sky Sports, there's obviously many more. I believe it's Dazone now looking to get into, into the European market. Um, do you think that that exclusive relationship between Sky and BT will be broken anytime soon? Do you think <coughs> more digitization will see Amazon and new firms entering the market? Sky and BT do have that stronghold in. Um, can I ask a question just to everybody else? Does, it, does anyone have a Sky or BT subscription? Do you have it mobile or do you have it in your house? Well, that's the So there's only two, only two of you. So how, do, how does everyone else watch? Do you have it as well? Yeah. I'm just really interested because what I mean is, is that I actually feel I'm becoming the dinosaur in what is the subscription uh, OTT cord cutting industry is the truth. I'm basically, for a football fan, one of the last generations that can still remember watching football on terrestrial television. So I was watching it in, I remember my first, I remember going to a game in about 87 when I was about six years old. And I remember um, watching John Barnes for Liverpool score a brilliant goal against Arsenal, um, against John Lukic into, into the top corner when we won one nil. But the reason why I say that is because all of you guys are consuming in a very different way. Um, and I think, you know, the in a particular set of generational iterations, me and above will keep generally paying for subscriptions on my television, on the whole. But for anyone below 40-ish, 35, 
why have a, why have a subscription for everything when you only need a subscription for something? Yeah. We just talk about the Premier League doing their own subscriptions yep. for Netflix. Yep. Do you kind of see that happening? Because I know this is the rights, Crystal Club, the Zone, yep. Sky Sports, BB Sport, I think Amazon Prime um, on it as well. But I think you haven't read my book when I wrote no, it. Would you, would you say that the shape of the whole dynamic would change if Sky, the Premier League, sorry, had their own subscriptions, say £10 a month? Yep. So, um, the short answer is it's logistically very difficult. And the reason why logistically it's very difficult is um, the Premier League, as a rights holder, basically are licensing the rights to the broadcaster to be able to exploit. They are an upstream provider of licenses. So if, what I mean by upstream is you have the Premier League as the owner of the rights you have the broadcasters as the exploiter of the rights, and then you have the subscribers, consumers, as the recipients of those rights through subscription fees. So what I mean at the top is the Premier League at the moment has no or minimal experience at any of the things that the broadcasters do on a geograph geography by geography basis. Now, they could buy that in, but at the moment they are in a relatively risk-free vacuum environment. They get um, five billion pounds every three years from three UK broadcasters. They get another five billion plus from all of the overseas broadcasters. It's quite a risky business plan to effectively go, we're going to say 10, 10 billion every three years and we're going to have to put in a worldwide global infrastructure to be able to not necessarily just give the rights to the broadcasters but to exploit those rights in every geography around the world market them customer service latency stuff whatever literally whatever I'm not saying it's not possible for a second but what I mean is the actual structure and scale needed for something like that is huge whereas the Netflix example in a way, I know Simon Jordan talked about that a lot of times, and I've talked about it, so it's actually not the correct analogy, I don't think. Because what Netflix is doing is having a bank of content that's relatively evergreen, that you can watch at scale on a global basis. Now, there might be particular licenses that you can they get in particular jurisdictions and territories and the rest, but for a lot of the content, it's available everywhere. And it's not time dependent. Whereas, so the Netflix model, whatever it is, and on demand is one thing, but a Premflix equivalent, the value in the broadcast basically goes to zero the second the match finishes. The market for highlights is a different matter, not denying that there is. But who wants to watch a game from four years ago? Yeah, nobody. So you're buying the product in order to watch it, and then that, that's basically it. And, and that's the reason why I think the modeling is slightly different because you know people subscribe to Netflix because maybe it's one or two things that they really want to watch and then the stickiness of the product means you can watch so many other things. It's the same with Premflix or equivalent to a degree, but the nature of the product couldn't be more different. We've got about five minutes left. <laughs> so you had, you had a question there. The last question. Yeah, I was gonna say, Recently, Sky lost um, uh, Matchroom Boxing, Eddie Young, to the Zone, mm -hmm. because basically he said that they're like dinosaurs of Sky in comparison to the Zone mm -hmm. because they can operate in so many different countries. Mm -hmm. So do you think maybe if it's not just a penalty, but like <coughs> football's going to outgrow BT and Sky because they're stuck in their old things, like you said? Well, you, you say that, but you know, BT and Sky have relatively good OTT apps. Fair to say, I've got I've got the BT app that I watch on my phone and my tablet. So, and you know, DAZN is in some countries previously had to go onto platform because the broadband wasn't and latency issues have impacted. So you know, it's easy. I mean, DAZN paid a lot of money to Matchroom as well. Is the truth? It was like competitive tender, I guess. And Sky and BT probably lost out. Is, is the answer. Um, 
or didn't value it as highly as some others. Now, sport is always going to be geographically locked to a degree. Usually sport is done on a territory by territory basis. That's how sometimes that, that, um, that money can be locked in for particular territories because the Premier League, for example, is much more valuable in the UK as it is in South Africa, for example, for all, all, types, of, all types of reasons. But what I would say is that just like what we are seeing with entertainment, you know, I think football, like net, one of the, net, the Netflix box said, Netflix boss said, Netflix is competing with Fortnite. I would literally take that a step further. Football is competing with Fortnite. And everybody's going, oh, these youngsters that, you know, his attention spans are decreasing and no one wants to watch 90 minutes and blah, blah, blah. It's total nonsense. I think it's total nonsense. Like, people are gaming for, for hours and hours and hours. It's actually particular entertainment platforms and channels are not doing a good enough job at making sure the attention is on them. And the reason why I say that to a degree is we're in an attention economy. There are so many competing platforms for people's attention. Like I think Fortnite is, you know, a substitute for watching football at three o'clock, whereas football only thinks Division Two is substitutable for Premier League, whatever else it might be. We're living in a world where people are like, well, I'll just watch Netflix rather than go to a football game. You know, football is not living in its own vacuum, in my view. Um, so there was, yeah. So and so that's the like the attention economy bit, I think, which is really really important. To that, I still think to your to your point, um, it's not necessarily just sports stuff anymore. I think it's an accessibility thing. Is the truth? The more stuff that's behind a paywall, fine. Everyone understands the rules of the game. They've got to pay for it to a degree. But the whole freemium model and the whole type of gaming approach, which is much more easily accessible stuff, even on YouTube when you're following people to be able to work out what moves they're doing or what streamers are doing or whatever else it might be, the more easily accessible something is, I'm saying very obvious things, the more easily that attention is drawn to that thing. If everything is behind a paywall, at some point you exclude so many people that actually it's not worth the scale that you can't reach. If that makes sense. Yeah. Um. I've got a list of about five more, five to ten questions I'd love to ask, but just time keeping it is past our, our, our deadline. So um, thank you very much, Daniel, for, for attending. Any questions maybe to submit if you'd like to join us, maybe on our podcast or even the future events as well, so we can resume the conversation. Sure. Um, but again, yeah, thank you for having me, uh, for, sorry, for, for coming and um, glad that you came and answered our questions. Thank you. Um, that's good. No, thank you. Like all the questions were great. It was really good. So if anyone wants to yeah, reach out, um, you can just email me basically. Just, yeah, Google me. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok, and Instagram at Football Law. Read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast. Like, share, and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Done Deal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers, and Premier League big business. A bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally, and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by 13, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk. That's 13shop.co.uk. Thanks for listening.